So we are now in this series where we're doing this kind of overview of the Bible. You know, just kind of seeing the forest in the trees. And so now we're up to the ministry of Jesus. And, and on each of these, we've had a little artistic, we call it illumination, a kind of like thing to get you thinking. And then we read a narrative that covers this, this portion. And then I zero in on a particular aspect of it in the message. So we'll start with this illumination, which contrasts Genesis 1 or compares Genesis 1 with John 1, the creation of the world with the coming of the, the Word of God. Let's listen to it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every human. God created humans in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. No one has seen God at any time. Christ has explained him. From the moment Adam and Eve broke humanity's perfect relationship with God, he has been working to restore and redeem what was lost. He worked through ancient ancestors of the faith, like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, Ruth, and King David, to prepare the world for what is to come. Finally, the moment has arrived. Four hundred years have passed since the last prophet of God spoke to the people of Israel. The people still wait for the Messiah, the promised one, who will save them and restore Israel. Their anticipation grows as the Roman Empire takes hold of their lands. Harsh taxes are enacted, and any signs of nationalism, dissension, and revolution are squelched with brutal force. Then one day, a strange man named John begins to preach and baptize people in the desert. He claims to be a prophet of God, sent to prepare people for the coming Messiah. John is baptizing one day when a man comes forward from a crowd, and John knows the time has come. The man asks to be baptized, and as he comes up out of the water, the Spirit of God descends like a dove, alighting on his head. A voice from heaven proclaims, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The man, Jesus of Nazareth, then travels into the desert where he fasts and prays. There he is tempted by God's ancient adversary, Satan. Satan knows this man is, in fact, the Son of God, sent to restore what was broken with the fall and to defeat death. Satan offers Jesus power over the world if only he will serve him, but Jesus refuses the offer. He knows God's way of taking back the world will be difficult and will come at great cost to himself, but he is more than willing to go through it for the full restoration of the world he loves. Jesus travels around the countryside, teaching people about God's love and how to follow him. By his hand, the blind miraculously receive their sight. The sick are healed and the lame walk once more. Crowds follow him, recognizing something new surrounds this humble man, and rumors of the Messiah buzz amongst them. He calls 12 men to become his particular disciples, who will travel with and learn from him. 
Most are undereducated and come from poor, working-class families. But he, like his father, looks beyond the outward appearance to a person's heart. Wherever Jesus goes, miracles abound. He calms storms with a single word, walks on water, multiplies a few baskets of food to feed thousands, and even brings the dead back to life. His teachings are no less astonishing as he calls his disciples to love their enemies and pray for those who persecute them. He tears down walls of race, society, and religion as he spends time with the marginalized and forgotten. His very words drive out demons and restore wounded souls. He makes grand, even frightening predictions for the future and speaks hauntingly of his own death. But not everyone is impressed. Among the teachers of the law, there is a growing number who disagree with his teachings that place relationship above religious piety. They find his behavior scandalous, and as he heals on the Sabbath and spends his time with prostitutes and Roman tax collectors, their every debate with him ends in embarrassment. As darkness grows in their hearts, so do their plans to be rid of this troublemaker. Jesus knows that the culmination of his mission on earth is near. He speaks one last time with his disciples, encouraging them to love and serve one another and to remember him always. He then leads them to a garden where he prays through the night for the strength to do what has to be done, to endure what must be endured for the redemption of the world. As the night wanes, the religious leaders arrive to arrest him. All of the disciples, men who had claimed they were willing to die for him, run away in panicked fear. The religious leaders are quick to take Jesus' case to the Roman governor, Pilate, who sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. Bloodied from severe beatings, Jesus is stripped nearly naked and laid on a wooden cross. Nails are hammered through his flesh, securing him to the beams. He cries out in agony, but he does not ask to be set free. He endures. The cross is raised, and there he hangs. Excruciating hours go by, and then, with a final cry to his father, he dies. His disciples cannot believe what has happened. How is it possible that Jesus is dead? Shame and fill, fear fill their hearts. What will happen to them now? Dawn, two days later, finds several women going to the tomb where Jesus is buried. But when they arrive, he is not there. Instead, angels stand in the tomb, their words bringing indescribable joy and excitement. Jesus has risen from the dead. The Son of God, the new Adam, has restored what was broken in the fall. He has defeated death and made a way for the redemption of all. It is time to spread the good news. What I'm going to be speaking on here this morning for the next 48 minutes or so um, is the absolute center of everything. I believe this is the goal to which the whole biblical narrative points. It's the culmination of the whole biblical narrative. I think it's what holds it all together. I think it's the thread that weaves everything into place. It's uh, what allows us to see the coherence of the whole thing. And what I'm speaking of is the cross. The cross. Um, a lot of folks, when they think about the cross, they Assume it's just about the atonement. He just died for our sins. And he certainly did die for our sins. But what I hope we'll see here this morning is that the cross, in its own way, encompasses everything. Everything Jesus was about, and everything this biblical narrative is about, and everything that we are supposed to be about. Uh, it is something that has just been gripping me for the last five, six years. I've become a person who's just obsessed with the cross. I just see... Uh, with ever-increasing clarity, depths of, of uh, beauty and amazement and truth in the cross. The attitude that I am going to try to be recommending for us here this morning is reflected in the statement that Paul made, which is all the more powerful because he made it in a very incidental way. But it shows you something about Paul's theology. He's talking to the Corinthians, and, and he says to them that I've resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And see, in that statement, the presupposition of it is that uh, to know everything you need to know 
about God or the gospel or about other people. It's enough to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Think about this. In fact, Paul sometimes even equates the cross with the gospel. He'll say that a certain group was persecuting the gospel, and then in the next phrase say they're persecuting the message of the cross. The gospel is the message of the cross. It contains in itself. If you understand what the cross is all about, it contains everything. Uh, It is the center of, of Jesus' life and the center of all Scripture. I love what Luther said one time, the Reformer, when he says, I see nothing in Scripture except Christ crucified. Now, I don't think that Luther carried that out very consistently at all. <laughs> I've read a lot of Luther's stuff. He wasn't that consistent. But I want to tip my hat towards him because I think he captured a brilliant insight there that hasn't been adequately, nearly adequately enough uh, worked out. It's all about the crucified Christ. One of my favorite contemporary theologians is uh, a man named Jurgen Moltmann. He wrote this fantastic book that's difficult for folks, but it's called The Crucified God. And, and here's what he says there. It says, the crucified Christ is the key for all the divine secrets of Christian theology. Amen and amen. And it's the key to all the secrets uh, of biblical theology and all the secrets of the biblical narrative and all of the secrets of uh, God's call in our life. It's everything we need to know about God, ourselves, other people, the world, our purpose, our mission, all of it. It's all found in the cross. Um, now, some of you know I've been for the last... Uh, five, six years working on this book that is all about the cross as I've been wrestling with some of the Old Testament pictures of God, and I'll get to that in a little bit. But it's why this is... This book now is about 650 pages, and it's growing. And one of these centuries, I'm going to get it done, I promise. But um, I'm now going to share in the next 37 minutes uh, a little snippet of that, all right? And I'm going to pray for succinctness because I have so much in here that wants to get out here but if I am not very disciplined, we'll be here till Thursday. And that would be fine by me, but the children's church might get a little uh, upset with us. So, um, yeah, so it, it, it's just, it's, uh, I got a passion around this and uh, a sense of gravity that is, uh, to communicate it, that is burning in me. So uh, let's pray here for a moment. Abba Father, I thank you for every person in this auditorium and uh, all of our pod congregation, our pod parishioners, and others who are tuning in. And I pray, God, right now that you open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds uh, to receive this. Uh, Lord, Holy Spirit, burn into our hearts whatever is true and let fall to the ground whatever is not. Uh, God, and let, let anoint this word with your authority to build your kingdom, to help us see the centrality of the cross so that we may live the, centra- the centrality of the cross. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said, amen. So there are messages where I shoot at the heart and motivation stuff. Uh, then there are other messages that I really require your brains. Uh, this is in that category. So you're, it's going to be packed. It's going to be intense. Uh, keep your thinking noggins going and follow me on this. All right? Are you ready? Here we go. First thing is we need to see, and this will be reminders for a lot of folks, but Jesus taught us that all Scripture is ultimately about him. It points to him. So there's this time where after the resurrection, he is, shows up on the road to, with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And these disciples are discouraged because they thought the crucifixion was the end of Jesus, when in fact it was the victory of Jesus. But they don't know that yet. And so they're discouraged. And Jesus shows up alongside of them. But they don't recognize him. And we find that happening several times in the uh, resurrection appearances. There's something about the resurrected body which it seems to me that what you see uh, is, is dependent upon what's in your heart. Your seeing is, is conditioned by that because they don't recognize him. But then Jesus, as he hears their discouragement, he begins to confront them. And he says this. Listen to this statement. He says, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And here's what all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory. See, they wanted the glory first. They thought that the Messiah was going to rise up and beat up the Romans and liberate Israel and all that. They wanted the glory now. But Jesus is saying, if you were really believing all that the prophets have spoken, you'd see that the Son of Man has to suffer first. It's about the cross, pointing to the cross. And then a little bit later on, he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses. Moses. 
the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Look at that. Apparently, to understand the scriptures in a way that points to Jesus, in a way that points to the crucified Jesus, you need more than just to read the words. Uh, there's, a, there's a spiritual component to understanding scripture where our eyes, our, our hearts, our minds have to be open to see something that's deeper than just the surface meaning of the words, because they already had that. He told them, this is what is written, if you'll have eyes to see, ears to hear, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And that resurrection, and I can't go into all this now, but the resurrection doesn't replace the cross as the centerpiece of Scripture. It confirms the cross as a centerpiece of Scripture because it confirms that the one who died there was the Son of God. And it confirms that this was all God's plan, and it confirms a lot of things that we'll be saying the cross is about here this morning. But Jesus is saying all of the Scriptures point to him. It's all about him. It's all about his suffering. Then there's another spot in, in John where he's this time debating the, the Pharisees. And he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like if you just know it, that's eternal life. And Jesus says, no, these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus here is saying that he is the life of scripture. And the purpose of studying scripture is to find him. And so he's saying... Essentially, that studying the scripture, knowing, having the whole thing memorized, study it all you want, but unless you're finding him, you're not finding life. From a, from a Christ-centered point of view, it just doesn't have value. And then he says, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. It's all about him. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus is the point of all of scripture. He claims to be the life of scripture. The point of the Bible, it's not an end in and of itself. And the point of Bible reading isn't just to know facts about the Bible. There's no points for that. It's a good thing to do, but you don't get life from that. See, that's what the Pharisees were doing. The purpose of the Bible is to point beyond itself to Jesus Christ. The center of our faith isn't a book. It's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And we read the Bible and study the Bible and preach the Bible to find the person and to, to grow in our relationship with the person. Um, see, it's so important to know what the Bible is for. I see a lot of folks today, especially younger folks, and it concerns me that they're walking away from the faith. And there's other folks who won't come to the faith because they lose their confidence in the Bible. Uh, maybe they take a class. This happened to me when I was a freshman at, at the University of Minnesota. You take a class, and the Bible is literature or something like that, a secular university, and you become convinced that uh, some of the stories in the Bible don't match archaeology. Or you become convinced that the Bible has a pre-scientific worldview. It's not scientifically accurate. Or you become convinced that there's contradictions you can't resolve or some other kind of discrepancy. And so then people say, well, then I can't be a Christian. No, I, can't, I can't believe in Jesus. And I think it's, I talk about this in my book, Benefit of the Doubt. That that's tragic and utterly unnecessary. Because see, God didn't inspire the Bible, breathe the Bible. That's what the word inspire really means. He didn't breathe the Bible for the purpose of it being a textbook on archaeology or a textbook on history or a textbook on science or a textbook on meeting a perfect standard of any other agenda we might want to impose on Scripture. It's not our job to be imposing on Scripture anything. We can't force it to meet our expectations uh, we're supposed to meet its expectations, all right? And, 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 and so what, the, what you can trust the Bible for is to point us to Jesus. That's why God inspired the Bible, to point to Jesus. And if you're trusting the Bible to point you to Jesus, you'll find that it does it very, very well. But if you're going to the Bible to impose your, find your own agenda, well, then people get set up with these expectations that then get disappointed, and they needlessly walk away from the faith or won't come to the faith because of it. Folks, the purpose of the Bible is to point us to Jesus. It's to bring us to a person. It's to foster this relationship, all right? It's to build the kingdom. Trust us to do that. Folks fight over inerrancy all the time, inerrancy or infallibility. You know, let it be inerrant about this. This is how it's inerrant. It's inerrant in that it, it will not err in pointing you to Jesus. You can trust it for that. Uh, you start imposing other standards on it, and you're going to be... It's not the Bible's fault that it's not meeting your agenda. It'd be like me trying to... Like the purpose of my glasses is to look through my glasses to see you. But if I try to use it as a screwdriver, I'm going to get disappointed. <laughs> Same thing with the Bible. 
Use it for what it's there for. It points to Jesus. Okay, so all scripture points to Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Because Jesus said a lot of things, and Jesus did a lot of things. He, he, does it mean he points to the manger scene, or does it mean that it's pointing to his uh, cleansing of the temple, or to, to his healing, uh, or his deliverance ministry, his teachings? What, what, what's it pointing to? And here's where I think it's so important. It will mean anything that we want it to mean, unless we make it crystal clear. And the clarity comes when we understand that the cross expresses, in a supreme way, the theme of Jesus' entire ministry. It expresses the thread that ties everything together. As foundation, it expresses the character of God that Jesus is always about, and that, 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 that unites everything that, that Jesus said and did uh, from the incarnation to the ascension. And so I, I don't have time, now that I am down to 20 minutes, I don't have time to give all the indications of this, uh, all the ways the, the New Testament shows us the centrality of this. Uh, it's all over the place. But um, um, I'm going to hit on three, very quickly, on three themes that we find reflect this centrality, and it shows us why, at least some of the reasons why the cross is central, all right? The first reason is this. In the crucifixion, we find the fulfillment of God's age-long longing to enter into a covenantal, marriage-like relationship with human beings. This is why he created us in the first place. He wants to share himself with us and invite us on the inside of his triune fellowship. It's a marriage-like kind of relationship, which is why the husband and wife uh, uh, analogy is used for God and his people throughout the whole Bible. He's longing for this. And so we've seen, even in the series that we've been doing, that God's always making covenants with people. And the biblical history is a history of God inviting us in on a covenant, and then of us breaking it. It's a history of God's faithfulness over and against our unfaithfulness. And so the lesson of the Old Testament, one of the main lessons, is that human beings cannot on our own keep covenant relationships with God. Human beings on our own are eventually unfaithful to the covenant God wants to invite us in on. That's why Paul says that by means of the law, no one can be justified. The law is simply a stipulation of the Old Covenant. And by that means, no one will be justified. The Old Testament proves that. It's not the problem with the law. The law is good. The problem is in our hearts. Our we are too fallen to keep covenant with God. On top of that, the, we learn from the Old Testament narrative that the wages of, or the result of breaking covenant with God, God is the source of all life. To break covenant with him, therefore invites death upon yourself. The wages of sin is death. The consequences of covenant breaking are death. So now God has a problem. How, how is he not only going to enter into a marriage relationship with us, but how is he even going to have us survive when we have broken covenant with the, the author of all life? Um, how's he going to resolve this? And so there comes a point where God reveals this. And this is, I think, one of the negative object lessons of the Old Testament. We learn how not to do it so that we can learn how to do it. God says, if I'm ever going to have this age, ever fulfill this age-long covenant, uh, this longing I have to be in a covenant relationship with human beings, then... I'll have to be faithful not only to my side of the covenant, but to their side of the covenant as well. Because they can't keep covenant on their own. God's going to fulfill both sides of the God-human covenant. And so, he needs to become a human being to keep the human side of the human covenant. And that's, of course, who Jesus is. Jesus comes, and he's fully God and fully human. This is why one of the many reasons why confessing the full deity of Christ is so important. He's fully God and fully human. And as fully God, he fulfills the, the God side of the covenant. He shows God being faithful to the human covenant. And as fully human, he's the first human being who keeps relationship with God in the covenant. He's the first faithful human being. He's the first righteous human being. Because the word righteous means rightly related. The first human being who's rightly related to God. He's the first human being who doesn't deserve the death consequences of covenant breaking. That's what Jesus is. He fulfills, he culminates this, this, this covenant. And then, and then, though Jesus doesn't deserve to die, he stands in our place as one who did deserve to die. Jesus, though he is sinless, he, he takes our place as a sinner. And he bears in his own life the consequences for our covenant breaking. Um, he suffers the, what we deserved. That's the death. When we look at the cross, we're seeing the death consequences of covenant breaking. In that sense, in that sense, he bears our punishment. 
But it's easy to get screwed up on that because, see, it's not like God was angry at Jesus or that he had to act violently towards Jesus uh, or that he had to vent his wrath on Jesus so that he would, wouldn't have to vent his wrath on us. as always like a rageaholic who's just got to kill somebody. No, it, it, Jesus was punished only in the sense that he stood in our place. And God the Father withdrew and turned him over to wicked humans and fallen principalities and powers and they were the ones who acted violently towards Jesus. Uh, they were the ones who inflicted on Jesus what would have been inflicted on all of us if Jesus had not stood in our place. So in that sense, he was our substitute. But it was the Father withdrawing. This is what God always judges. He, he holds back things uh, in his mercy, keeping people from suffering the consequences of their, their covenant breaking. But there can come a time where God withdraws, and now evil runs its course. And that's what he does with Jesus. That's why Jesus experiences God abandonment on the cross. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so now because of that, we are able to enter into a relationship with God. Paul puts it like this, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a statement, what a statement. God made him who knew no sin. He was the only one, only human who didn't deserve this, but he now stood in our place as a sinner. And he did that so that we now may now share his position as a righteous covenant keeper. Uh, the scripture tells us that when we trust in Christ, we are placed in Christ. And so when we trust in Christ, when we surrender to him, we are put in the one who is the faithful covenant keeper and we share his righteousness. That's why it's the righteousness of God. Uh, he bears our curse that we might share in his glory. He bears our sin that we might share in his righteousness, praise God. And so scripture tells us over and over again in a million different ways. It's just beautiful that when we're in Christ, we're in some literal sense put inside the Son of God. Then we share that position of the Son of God in relationship to the Father. We are loved with the exact same love that Jesus is loved with. We share in the exact same righteousness as, as, as Jesus Christ. We're made holy in Christ. We're made blameless in Christ. We sang it about it earlier. We're going to uh, come not with our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. We're made children of God in Christ. We're destined for heaven in Christ. We're given an eternal inheritance in Christ. Uh, uh, we're, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. All of our sins are removed in Christ. It's all in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. Our life is in Christ. Our joy is in Christ. It's all there. And why is that possible? Because he stood in our place as a covenant breaker, and we can now share his place as the one true covenant keeper. So this resolves the problem that we see wrestling throughout the whole Old Testament. What's God going to do with an unfaithful people? It finds its culmination, and it's resolving in the person of Jesus Christ when he dies on the cross. That's one of the reasons why this is the centerpiece. It culminates that whole... Everything God does in the Old Testament is about covenant. In fact, you can call the Old Testament an inspired record of God's faithful covenant keeping in relationship to a people who are constantly breaking it. And the problem that poses gets fixed on the cross, praise God. Second reason why this is central, the centerpiece of Scripture. And this is huge. Lord, give me clarity and succinctness. The cross is the ultimate, definitive, unqualifiable, uncompromisable, Unfathomable, incomprehensible, beautiful, magnificent, perfect revelation of God's eternal nature. The cross is that. And you see that reflected in a million different ways in the New Testament. No, not a million, because there's not that many verses, but at least in a lot of ways. It's reflected all over the place. As, for example, when Jesus says in John 5, that, or John 12, uh, that when I'm lifted up, I'll glorify the Father. The cross is the time when the Father's glorified. His character is most perfectly put on display. But the, the, the clearest way I think it's, it's expressed, and the most succinct way, is in the epistle of John, where John says, first, that God is love. He gets this from, from the cross. God is love. That's his eternal nature. From eternity to eternity, God is love. But what does love mean? Because love can mean anything you want. Well, John clarifies it for us by pointing us to the cross. Here's how we know what love is. And really, it's the only way we know what real love is. Jesus Christ died for us, so also we should give our life for one another. Uh, do the math on this. God is love. What kind of love? Cross-like love. The cross defines the very nature of God. It's the perfect revelation of God. And it's the only thing that could serve as this. And I want us to see this here this morning. Look, at the depth of a person's love for another is measured by the degree to which they're willing to sacrifice themselves for another. The depth of the sacrifice reveals the quality of the love. 
Now, on the cross, God went to the furthest extreme he could have possibly have gone. He sacrificed everything he could possibly sacrifice for the sake of the beloved. And the beloved, in this case, could not have deserved it less. We, the covenant breakers, we were the ones he, he, he loved. So here, on the cross, God first becomes a human being, and that's already crossing a great distance when he becomes uh, the person of Jesus Christ. But then on the cross, the all-holy God takes on our sin, experiences the sin of the world. And the God, who is love, perfect united love, his Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, he experiences God's separation on the cross. He stands in our place as, and bearing the God-forsaken curse of the cross. That's why Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the midst of that despairing pain, he cries that out. God Almighty is experiencing God-forsakenness. So God, in showing his love for us, becomes his opposite. He becomes his antithesis. Experiencing sin and God-forsakenness. There is nothing in all eternity that God could do that would take him one inch further than what he already did for us. And the unsurpassability of the sacrifice that we see on the cross reveals the unsurpassable quality of his love for us. That God is this infinitely intense, perfect, unwavering love. It's a a love from all eternity. God is this kind of love that would cross an infinite distance for a race of people who couldn't deserve it less. So if you see that, then you understand why the cross, it can never be exceeded in terms of its perfection in revealing God. You can never have a, a, a more dynamic, more perfect revelation of God than this. And that, folks, is why I am so passionate about uh, telling us that we can never place anything alongside of the cross or in competition with the cross or above the cross in terms of our thinking about God. All of our thinking about God should be centered on the cross. And, 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 and uh, to see, interpret everything else we find in Scripture through the lens of the cross, not in competition with the cross. Amen? The cross is, is, is the centerpiece. Now, that immediately raises this thorny question. And uh, I could spend nine hours on this. Oh, man. Lord, help me here. Look, at, it raises the question, what do you do about the Old Testament violent portraits of God? A God who says, show them no mercy. Uh, slaughter everything that breathes. Uh, kill the men, the women, the children, the infants, the animals. Uh, that doesn't seem very Christ-like. Or the picture of God smashing parents and children together in his rage. I'll smash them together. Or the picture of God... Uh, in Lamentations, it says he causes the mothers to cannibalize their babies as they're starving. Um, what, do you do, what do you do with this? Now, I've got 650 pages that I've written on this, so I, I can't share those right now. Uh, it will be coming out, and I'll have a layman's version of this thing too, so don't think you have to do the academic one. But here's the thing. I'm just going to plant a seed here. That's all I'm going to do. Plant a little tiny snippet seed, little tiny thing. It's going to be taking me five minutes. And... Um, what I'm going to share here is my view. As I'm wrestling with this, I'll just be honest with where I'm heading on this. Uh, and it has to do with the cross. This isn't the doctrine of Woodland Hills Church. This isn't a doctrine at all. This is Greg Boyd trying to work out a problem. If you have a better way of solving it, then by all means, do that and share it with me because I'm all ears. Uh, but but he, he, here's what happened with me. About five years after doing a ton of research over 20 years, I was going to put together all the best arguments I found that would explain why God did what he did in the Old Testament. Uh, why he commanded genocide of the Canaanites. Why he would smash children and parents together and so on and so on. And I collected all those together as I got ready to write this book. Because it's one of the main questions I, I get asked all the time. And as I began writing this thing, I realized that I no longer believe that. I, 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 they no longer work. These explanations don't work. And I can't ask other people to believe something that I myself don't believe. Can't do it. Um, at most, the very best arguments I had would maybe make God look a little bit less ferocious, maybe a little bit more ethical, maybe even justified. But none of the explanations allowed me to see what Martin Luther said we're supposed to see, and that is Christ crucified. I, 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 none of them show how all these scriptures bear witness to Christ, the Christ who died on the cross. And that's what all scripture is supposed to do. Jesus says it. Uh, and, and, and so these explanations just don't work. How do I find God crucified in these portraits of God commanding slaughter? And so I 
gave up on the, those explanations, and I just had to go before God for quite a period of time. I took Luther's statement uh, that it, I find nothing in Scripture except Christ crucified. And I believe all this is, is divinely inspired. And so I just, before God, said, How? and Jesus said he had to open up their eyes to see beneath the, the, the letters uh, how these scriptures bear witness to Christ. So I just prayed, God, open my eyes, open my eyes. What, what, what are we missing? What are we missing here? I believe it's inspired, but I also believe that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God that cannot be compromised. How do I put these two things together? And then there came a time where I got a reframe. Um, and I've been working it out over, over, over the last five years, but I got a reframe. And I'm not saying it was a revelation. It felt like a revelation, but I'm not going to claim that. Uh, Paul Eddy, who's really the only one who knows the full, you know, full theory I'm putting out here, he says, Greg, it's either, either it's revelation or you're mad. <laughs> you're insane. You're a fr- fruitcake. Uh, now, he thinks it's revelation, but you'll have to decide for yourself. So here, here, here it is in a nutshell. Look at it. So meditate on the cross. What's going on at the cross? Think about this. As I look at the cross, what we see there is God is bearing our sin. And because he's bearing our sin, he takes on an appearance that reflects that sin. When you look at the cross... On the surface, what you see is a crucified criminal, a God-forsaken crucified criminal. And in doing that, he's reflecting the ugliness and the consequences of sin. Our sin is projected on the cross. But yet we claim that this is the revelation of God. How can it be both the revelation of our sin and also the revelation of God? Think about this. And the answer to that is this. It's not on the surface that we see the revelation of God. There we see the revelation of our sin. But that becomes a revelation of God for us because we, by faith, see past the surface and we know that it's God who's stepping in to bear our sin and to take on that appearance. And the stepping down is what reveals God's love. It's the the enormity of the sacrifice that reveals the quality of his love. So it's not what the natural eye can see. It's what faith alone can see. And we see behind the surface a God who, out of incredible love, is stooping to bear our sin and therefore take on that appearance. To the natural eye. Paul said he used to look at Christ with the natural eye, with the fleshy eye. All you see is the crucified criminal. But to the eyes of faith, that have been illuminated by faith, you see past the surface and you see the love of God, the humble love of God, who out of covenantal faithfulness is stepping down to bear our sin and take on uh, uh, our, our ugliness. He wears our ugliness. So we see the beauty of God revealed in the midst of our ugliness. That's what's going on when we have faith in the cross. Now, if the cross reveals what God is truly like, then it reveals what God always is like. God didn't start becoming like this when he got crucified. No, this is God's very nature. God is this kind of love. And since all Scripture has been breathed by that God, the crucified God, and all Scripture is supposed to point to the crucified God, it seems to me that we should always read the Bible exercising that same kind of faith. Reading the Bible knowing that our God is the kind of God who's always been stooping to bear our sin and the kind of God who's always been stooping to take on the appearance that reflects that sin. And so we're to read the Bible having the same faith we have in the cross where we expect to find a surface that reflects our sin, but we see the revelation of God because we look past the surface to a God who's stooping out of covenantal faithfulness with his people to bear that on on, on himself. So when I come to pictures of God saying, show no mercy, or any picture that seems to contradict the character I find in Christ, um, I see the the surface portrait that's painted in Scripture as being a, a, a sort of a precursor to the cross. It has the same role the cross does. It reflects the sin of the people that God's dealing with. But because I know what God really is like, he's a sin-bearing God who takes on the appearance of a sinful people, what reveals God to me is that God would have the humility and covenantal faithfulness to step down and to bear that as his own. I know that God's a God who bears uh, his people's sins and takes on that appearance, and so I see past the surface to see the stooping God. The surface reveals not what God is like, but rather the sin of his people who see him like this. The cultural conditioned mind and fallen state of his people who see him like this. This is why many of the portraits, if you compare it with what you find in other literature of the ancient Near East, they look quite similar. The warrior God. His people expect God to be this way. And just as we project our sin on the cross, they project their sin onto God. 
But God, out of his covenantal faithfulness, he's committed to be faithful to his people, to identify with his people, to be in solidarity with his people, to continue to work through his people, even though they see him like this. And so he bears it. He wears it as his own. The God who takes our sin and makes it his own has always been taking the sin of his people and making it his own. And it, 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 many of the ways he appears then in the record of his covenant, the covenantal activity uh, show that that's what he's up to. That's what he's doing. He's a God who... The cross shows that there's no death that God won't stoop to be in solidarity with his people. So also these pictures show us the death to which God has always been stooping in order to stay in covenantal relationship with his people and work through them. Um, he owns it as his own. Now, in doing this, here's the thing. God would have to anticipate that his people in the church, after he comes, they'll really believe him when he says, here's what I'm really like. I'm like the cross, the God revealed on the cross. Because only if you really believe that God really is like this will you look back on the record of his covenantal activity and be able to see that what he does on the cross, he's been doing all along. We have to really trust that, that, that God looks like the cross. And I see in the early church, and I talk about this in the book, many of the theologians were wrestling this way. They were reinterpreting these pictures of God in the Old Testament because they say, we know what God's really like in, in Christ, and so something else must be going on here. And so they're reinterpreting these passages. What happened, unfortunately, is that in the 4th century, the church inherited the power of the sword from Constantine, and it got used to uh, get acclimated to violence using violence, and then, see, once it started using the power of the sword, uh, now instead of reinterpreting the Old Testament to bring it into alignment with the cross, they start reinterpreting Jesus Christ and the cross to bring it into alignment with the Old Testament. And these violent portraits of God are no longer problems to be struggled with. They like these, these portraits of God because they justify their violence. And so they started appealing to them. And many other aspects of the Old Testament that we talked about last week, I started appealing to them in order to justify their behavior. And all I'm saying is, I think it's time that we, once again, have total confidence that God is who he says he is on the cross. And knowing that now, we read everything else through the lens of that cross. And we can see how, now, how even the most horrendously violent portraits of God are pointing to the cross. They're pointing to it because they're showing that what God does on Calvary, he's been doing all along in various ways for his people as he bears their sin. Now, look, whether you agree with that or not isn't really the important point. Think about it. Pray about that. Come up with something better and let me know about it. But the important point is this. Whether you can explain it or not, there are, as I've, I've preached this a number of times, there's a number of passages, dozens and dozens in the New Testament, that tell us that the revelation of God in Christ should never be qualified or trumped or anything. Jesus trumps everything that leads up to him. And, and so our confidence has got to be that, that, that the way he's revealed in Christ, and most especially on the cross, is the way God really is. All right. There's that. And now i got five minutes to do my last point. So if you thought I was talking fast before, get ready for this. Here's the final way. The final way that the, the cross is central. The cross reveals, culminates God's longing uh, for a covenantal relationship. The cross is the quintessential revelation of God. And the cross, thirdly, is the definitive revelation of us, what God thinks about us. We find several dimensions to this. First of all, as I just said, when you look at the cross, here we see the depth of our sin and the consequences of our sin. And that ought to be something that always keeps us humble. And if we're ever uh, inclined towards self-righteousness, look to the cross because it will keep you humble. Your sin was so serious, it required this drastic of a measure to be healed. The cross reveals our sin. But it also reveals at the same time that even though we were covenant breakers, even though we were so deep in sin that it required that, God nevertheless thought we were worth dying for. God paid an unsurpassable price uh, to be in relationship with us. And that means God ascribes unsurpassable worth to us. Though we are fallen, God thinks we have a worth that could not possibly be improved on. Which leads to the third thing we see about ourselves on the cross, and that is, praise God, that we are forgiven. The cross is our forgiveness. On the cross, we're seeing, we're, because he stood in our place, we can stand in his place. So as far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast from us. They are done. They are over. They are abolished. We're covered in the flood, praise God. We're washed clean. We're rendered whole and blameless. All that is there on the cross. 
Which is why in the kingdom there's no place for regrets. No place for regrets. Yeah, you learn from your mistakes, but then they're under the cross and you move on. Uh, we're, we're sinful, but we have unsurpassable worth. We're forgiven. And finally, when we look to the cross, it's not only about what God does for us, it's about the life that God calls us to live. It's a model for us. He calls us to live a cruciform life. And he empowers us to live a cruciform life. Because the cross has, has, for all who will accept it, abolished the power of sin and abolished the principalities and powers. And because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we now are empowered to live a cruciform life. And this is the center of what it is to be in the kingdom. We're to look like Christ crucified. And the kingdom looks like Christ crucified. So Paul could summarize everything we need to know about Christian ethics in, in, in two verses, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, when he says, live in love. Imitate God. Imitate God. The word there is mimetai in Greek. Mimic. Do exactly what you see another doing. Mimic God. And then here's what it looks like if you mimic God. And this is another proof that Jesus is fully God. To mimic God means you live in love. And what is love? Well, as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. We're to live in a way that reflects what God has done for us. The way God has sacrificed so much to ascribe worth to us, we are to live to ascribe worth to all others. And to the degree that we do that, we're in the kingdom. We're manifesting his character. Think of it like this. If the cross defines what God really is like, then what it means to be godly is to be like the cross. If that's what God is like, then we are like God insofar as we are like that. So the cross doesn't just define who God is. It defines who we are called to be. Uh, what it means to be godly. People get a lot of funky ideas. Oh, God, are you a godly person? Uh, well, yeah. Oh, yeah, I don't go to those kind of movies. I don't do this. Blah, blah. Well, you know, the most important question is this. Are you living a sacrificial life? Are you living a sacrificial life? Uh, folks, this is why it's so central. Uh, I preach on this a lot, and it's because it's so central and it's almost ignored in the church in America. But this is why... Loving your enemies and turning the other cheek and blessing those that persecute you and never returning evil with evil but returning evil with good and feeding those who are, who are against you uh, and giving drink to those who are thirsty even though they're hostile towards you uh, and swearing off all violence. It is the center of the call of the kingdom because this is what God does for us. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. So also, the way we treat enemies, people who are hostile to us, is the defining mark of whether or not we're in the kingdom. It's central. So Jesus said, love your enemies so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We, are, we manifest that we're children of the Father to the degree that we put on display the Father's character. And what is the Father's character? The cross. And so it's to the extent that we treat others the way that God treats us while we were yet enemies. To that degree, we are in the kingdom. We are children of, of, of the Father in heaven. And our call is to live like that to all people at all times, no ifs, ands, or buts. And folks who want to, like the church since the fourth century has been, been trying to back away, trying to get around that, trying to qualify that. Surely it doesn't mean our enemies, it means someone else's enemies. We want to kill our enemies. No, you can't qualify this, compromise it, get around it, do exegetical gymnastics on it. You're playing with the center of the center of the center. This is the defining mark of the kingdom. It's the most beautiful, distinctive thing about the kingdom. Don't qualify it. The challenge is to live it, not to, not, not to explain it away. All right? Uh, it's all right there. And so, folks, folks, I'm a man obsessed with, with the cross. I admit it, I'm obsessed. But I think it's the key to everything. It's the key to everything. Uh, Paul says in, in Colossians 1 that by means of the cross, God has reconciled all things to himself. The cross reconciles all things to himself. I think it's what reconciles the Old Testament with the New Testament. And I just kind of give you a little snippet about why. Um, I actually, I actually, several years ago, had this vision. And, I, and this may sound flaky, but give me a minute here. Where I, I, I try to spend the first 20 minutes, 20, 30 minutes of every day in, in, in just being before God. When I'm still in bed, I just pray, and I'm just there, and I just, you know, commune with God. And I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but once in a while I fall back asleep while I'm doing that. And I fell back into this kind of trance. Not, I was awake, but I was kind of in a half-sleep. And then I also saw, as I'm laying there, a kind of an outline of the cross on the ceiling. And I can't explain this, but I saw this cross, and I, what I got from it was that it was like, it was a purifier between God and the world. And it was like God was coming to us through this cross. I didn't see God, but I felt like there was this energy going through the cross, and then it was grabbing the world, the whole cosmos, and bringing it back to God. 
And so there's this two-way thing. God to us, God infusing the cosmos and us with his holiness, and God taking all that's ugly and violent and bringing it to himself, in the process purifying it through the cross. And it was overwhelming. It was just beautiful. It was just radiant. And it captured for me just how central the cross is to everything. It's the center. It's the thing that redeems the world. And so, folks, I encourage us to adopt the attitude that Paul had when he said, I don't know anything except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know, no, no Jesus Christ and him crucified. However, explain the Old Testament, no Jesus Christ and him crucified. Whatever you think about uh, politics, no Jesus Christ and him crucified. However grouchy or nice your neighbor is, no Jesus Christ and him crucified. If you're driving on the, on the street and, and someone cuts you off and you want to swear at him, Look to the cross and know that you're a sinner and, and, and therefore have no, no business getting angry with anybody. Um, and, and, and look to the cross and know that that person has unsurpassable worth. Or when they're gossip, gossiping about you at, at the office, look to the cross and remember those folks have unsurpassable worth and you have, you're allowed one opinion about them. Only one. If you're in the kingdom, you're allowed one opinion and that is you agree with God that they were with God dying for. And so you just bless them. If you're worried about what God thinks about you, look to the cross. If you doubt God's goodness for a second, look to the cross where you see his goodness put on full display. If you find yourself judging others or getting self-righteous, look to the cross and it will humble you. If you're worried that a loved one of yours is too far gone to ever be reached by God, oh no, look to the cross and remember how far God was willing to come down and, 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 and reach him. He won't give up. If uh, you are afraid that the world is spinning out of control and that evil is going to win, look to the cross where God defeated all evil. If you're wondering about how you're to overcome evil, look to the cross where God overcame all evil. Uh, when you read the Bible, keep your eyes fixed on the cross and use it as the lens. The Bible is the lens and the cross is the lens by which we read the Bible. And when you're struggling with, with, with pictures of God that just don't seem very Christ-like, keep your eyes fixed on the cross. Uh, look through the surface and see, ask the question, what else is going on here? What is God doing in the background of this? Cross, 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 the cross. All right. I want to call the prayer teams to come up here. And uh, I, yes, praise God, praise God. The cross is, is beautiful. Uh, and if you're here this morning and have any need uh, that could, could use prayer, uh, I encourage you to come up here and share with these folks. Everything you share is kept in confidence. Because of the cross, we can be together worshiping God and can pray for one another. The cross makes all things possible. We just stay. I just want to close with this benediction. Um, I pray, Abba Father, that as we go out of here, we do it with a resolution to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And to, to know you as Jesus Christ crucified. And to look at others through the lens of Christ crucified. And to see ourselves uh, in the light of Christ crucified. And Father, as we go out of here, Holy Spirit, burn in our hearts a desire to live Jesus Christ crucified. To all people at all times. To manifest your character, Abba Father. You've empowered us to do it. Holy Spirit, batter down any walls of resistance in our heart that prevents us from doing it that we can put on display as your ambassadors, your character to a world that desperately needs it in Jesus' name. And all of the kingdom people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go out and live a cruciform life.